So I have a question for you. Uh, it's not directly related to today's discussion, but it could be. When you pick up a camera, any camera, what's your pet peeve? What's the thing that always bothers you when it isn't right? Ah, okay. What bothers me... Okay, I, I, I'm one of those people. I will pick up a camera and I, you know, say it's been sitting on my desk or in the cabinet or in my bag for a while. Uh, and I will pick up my camera and I will shoot. And I will not pay attention at all to the settings that I had it set on the last time. So, um, <laughs> the, 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 um, uh, you know, uh, on digital cameras, uh, I'll often have the white balance wrong or, uh, I'll have it set to manual and I think it's set to aperture priority or something. And I won't notice sure, it's, for or five or six shots. It's, yeah, it's daytime and you have the ISO set at 73 million. And, right. right, right, exactly. So um, I want a camera, uh, from that point of view, I want a camera that either has one setting. <laughs> right, or, right. The Holga is the solution. <laughs> right, right. One setting you, or... Well, but, yeah, although but, you, st you still... You still have to know if there's any film in it or... <laughs> right, exactly. And <laughs> like Yeah, and you talked about that the last time, going out and shooting a, um, you know, shooting a roll of uh, roll of film that wasn't in your camera. <laughs> out in the, yeah, you yeah. Know. So that's a liberating experience. It, I can is. It is. Um, so, so that's... Uh, I would say that's a pet peeve. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else... Um, that's the biggest that's the biggest i would say is so, and it's so i my have to fault. say that i was going to say it's hard to blame it on the camera yeah. although you could probably come up with something like the trolls wallet in uh in you know bilbo's story where it complains bitterly as soon as you touch it so <laughs> i suppose you could <laughs> sure sure um uh ethan what do you think about that what what's your uh What's your pet peeve? Man, I um, I got a few of these. Um, my buddy Dennis and I often will lend each other a camera for one purpose or another, and uh, especially digital cameras with a lot of settings. He uses all settings that I consider really stupid and annoying and will reset <laughs> everything on my camera, as I will do on his. And uh, <laughs> we get annoyed at each other and spend 20 minutes uh, going through all the settings list to to figure it out. It's um, like it's like taking your car to get the oil changed, and you get in it, and they've changed the radio station, and they've moved the seat, and it takes you five minutes to get your seat back right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I I think my biggest pet peeve with cameras is I'm up to so many that um, when I pick one up. Um, I'm not always sure that it's working or doesn't have light leaks or the shutter is not off. And so I really got to shoot like uh, two or three rolls in the thing before, you know, I'm confident enough to shoot something that I care about, at which point I probably moved on to another camera that I'm tinkering with uh, for the purposes of making something. And, you know, I just never have any confidence in my, my piles of cameras. Uh, one good one that I've got, though, is um, I've got this old Minolta point and shoot that actually like yells at you. Uh, it, it's got sort of, um, 
like some sort of uh, voice recording chip in it. Oh, right. It says, like, load <laughs> film or underexpose. <laughs> it's great. It takes care of a lot right. of that. And it's kind of that, that scary machine voice that they used to use. It's yeah, yeah, 1980s robot. Somebody, but yeah, <laughs> does it does right. it ask you why are you taking this picture? It's just a pile of rocks. Um, no, but maybe I should uh, <laughs> make that module. I have some voice modules uh, sitting around. Yeah, you should ch- ch- change them all to something like that. It's like of no use at all to the yeah. person. <laughs> <laughs> this picture sucks. <laughs> or yeah, yeah. Or, or don't don't point the camera at him. He's ugly. <laughs> oh man, that would be a good prank a uh, project. Yeah, uh, Nick, what about you? What do you think? Oh, hmm, pet peeves. Well, I was thinking uh, the kinds of things that bother me most are probably ergonomics, things being in the wrong place, awkward, and and I have a pretty generous definition definition of things being in the right place. I use some really awkward cameras, and I'm okay with them. So. It's not really a big thing, but if something's really hard to handle, that bothers me. Well, I got a question about that. I know Nick and I are both fans of um, the Balda Baldessa series, which is something that, like, every Mm -hmm. time I pick it up, I'm angry about where all the controls are. You know, it's got that little focusing wheel. The wind is in a key on the bottom. The eyepiece is directly in the center of the camera. I always pick it up, wind up looking at the back of the case, can't figure it out, got to pull it away from my eye and figure you know, where to look, and, uh, man, in about 15 minutes, I, I really love that camera, uh, even, even with all of those things, and maybe because of them. That's something that I'm planning to, to talk about when, uh, we get to it later in the program, but I think it's very, very possible to adapt to things that feel wrong at first, so, and I spent, I spent a long period of time as a, as a moderator on a forum about some brands of cameras and they were some of the new it was the fujifilm uh website and people who first adapted to those often had a lot of trouble because they're small and people came from these great big heavy cameras and they felt like these you know they were cramped and hard to operate but if you just used them for a little while and relaxed your hands would learn how to do it and all of a sudden everything would change and it didn't take very long so that that's a that's a really big part of this is is just taking the time to learn it and the problem right. is if you use 50 different cameras and they're all really different it's uh it's a lot of learning <laughs> yeah yeah I, I often think like all of my problems would be solved if i just had one camera that i used all the time which i have done but um you know in in tinkering on and working on cameras and making camera products. I've gone back to having more cameras than is practicable for being a good photographer. Yeah, it's just not worth... It's just not... It's too boring to... That whole one camera, one lens thing, it's it's all right as an exercise, but life is too short to stick to that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, and with that, uh, what do you say we start the Homemade Camera Podcast?
Okay, for this episode, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about uh, industrial design. And industrial design for what we're looking at is not only the look and feel, uh, but also the placement, the um, function, the throw distance, all that type of stuff. So um, one of the first things that comes to mind is is the term ergonomics. And uh, I did a little little dive into ergonomics. And uh, specifically, the term has to do with uh, people's efficiency in their working environment. And I think that that can translate directly to any tool you use, whether it's your, your car or your camera or, you know, uh, or a tool um, that you're working with at your, at your, your, your workplace. And, um, the, the big thing that, that I kind of wanted to talk about was the idea of really starting to pay attention to those elements in the builds that we, that, uh, that we make. So, um, you know, there, there are some, some things that, you know, we can do, and there are some things that we can't do, uh, given materials and, and, uh, construction techniques and stuff like that. But I think that we can keep in mind all the time, um, different elements. So here's a, here's an example of, of what I'm thinking about. Um, I've been building these lumen boxes for a while and, the lumen boxes are exactly what they sound like. They're, they're boxes. And I've been building them with kind of pointy corners. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking more and more that that is the absolute worst thing to do if you want to put it in your pocket or put it in a bag. Uh, and part of that is, now this is not exactly... It's, you know, uh, it's design while it is functioning, but it's, it's design while it's sitting in your bag or sitting in your pocket, or it's, um, you know, sitting somewhere ready to be used and, you know, sharp plastic corners, uh, can, can tear your pants if it's in a pocket and, and gouge your leg and, uh, and bruise you up a little bit. And, uh, you know, so I've, uh, I've been thinking about the idea, you know, I need to start building more rounded objects if they're going to be easily carried. So uh, the same thing has to do with, um, how it fits in your hand. If you are, um, you know, it, it, it let's go with a traditional, uh, film camera that, that, you know, you're going to put up to your eye you know, part of the deal is when you put a camera to your eye, you're pressing it against your face, right? You're pressing against your cheek in order to look through that uh, viewfinder, at least I do. Um, and so we've got to start thinking about surfaces that, while we're framing the camera, surfaces that work with the human body. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you talked a little bit about, uh, Nick, you talked a little bit at the beginning about the idea of those small Fuji cameras that were so small that people didn't, didn't know how to handle them, 
uh, when they were first, when they first came out, but then they got used to them. Right. So yeah, there, there is a size, there is a shape that should be, um, should be good for not for all, but everyone should have a size and, and shape of a camera that is functional for each individual, if that makes any sense. Well, what you're suggesting is that proportion to the to the hands and 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 use patterns of the right. person. Right, absolutely. Uh, I guess I guess the shape of your your shape of your face could be significant too, and which eye is dominant, and all those little details. Yeah, and um, let's talk let's talk a little bit um, about one of my favorite cameras uh, that I've recently gotten, the Konica Auto Reflex. TC, I think it's a TC. Yes, it's a TC. I turned around. Uh, part of the part of the reason why I like it is it couples very well to that forty millimeter one point eight lens, um, but it has a problem, and the problem is that it has a light meter that switches on and off by pulling out the advanced lever away from the body of the camera. It just comes out, you know, I don't know, a 16th of a turn, 16th of a full rotation, something like that. But it is far enough that if you are left eye dominant, you are now putting that lever into your right eye, which I'm going to say, I'm going to say is a design failure, right? Uh, Now, it's a design failure for... Uh, I don't know, the 15% of the population that's left eye dominant, or maybe the 25% of the population that's left eye dominant. I don't know what the, um, I don't know what that split is. I'm holding that camera up to my face right now, trying to look through it with my left eye. And I think there's more to it than just left, right eye. Cause it, the one that I have, Oh, that hits it the actually the nose, doesn't, doesn't it? It's it's the same camera. It's not sticking in my eye. And also, I've got to point out that the tip of the the rewind lever on mine is springy. It moves independently of the lever. Right. It has a little uh, swing and to so it. That it press, so that it kind of springs out of the way. And it looks to me like it's a modification to sort of moderate the problem you're describing. So that when I put it up to my wrong eye, my left eye, as you would, yeah. that little, the tip of that lever just, just sort of bends out of the way without changing the setting. It's actually right. pretty interesting. Yeah, but still, you are still, you know, if you let that lever go in, you get a much better feel, but you can't But you can't meter anything um, when it's in. Um, so, you know, I mean, can you imagine getting you know spending whatever these were new say 300 bucks new um and you put it up to your eye and it's and yeah and it doesn't actually poke you in the eye it pokes you in the bridge of the nose um yes yeah I, i i might be a little bit disappointed with that purchase um so I, I, you just I need what a you're bigger saying. nose. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Right. Like I, I am also left eye dominant, uh-huh. uh, but my schnoz is so big. I got to turn my head all the way to the right and look at the side of my head like a chameleon on most cameras. Oh, that's, uh, unless I force myself with, to use my right eye. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's why it works for me too. I've realized it's my large nose that's protecting me. So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Graham, you you need to get some nose enhancement surgery. That's what the deal is. That's what the deal is. I've that three D print I've, you. A I have a tiny little button nose. nose, and that tiny little button nose does not. Um, uh, yeah, does not make me turn my eye. Okay, so if I turn if I turn my eye, so as you said, chameleon like, I'm still getting that lever touching my face so um yeah so we need to sink your eyes deeper into the sockets so if you would starve yourself (laughs) (laughs) so that's right that's right um there's the uh i don't know if you've uh ever seen the movie bride wars but there's the quote uh about a wedding dress one does not adjust vera wang one adjusts oneself for vera wang so, yes, absolutely. So, yes, we definitely, I think we just, it's just plastic surgery and body modification that we need to, to do for these, you know. Like if your hands aren't big enough mm-hmm. for a Pentax 6-7, you just need finger extensions. Yeah. <laughs> or a butter grip. A butter grip might might work a little bit better, right? So, um or you uh, could you have, might need bigger hands. <laughs> I was going to say you 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 should make butter finger extensions. There we go. For I like that. That's yeah. Yeah, there we go. Um, so uh, back in the I think it was was the eighties, maybe it was the nineties. Um, Volkswagen had an ad campaign called Farfenugen, and the idea of that is it is a combination. Of the word foreign, which is to drive, and vergnügen. Um, do you love my uh, German accent there? Um, which is enjoyment. Um, and I, I, I think that that kind of, you know, Cameron Nugen um, uh, is, <laughs> is is to, or photographic Nugen. Um, you know, something along those lines. Um, it is something that that I I think I find it I I find it to be compelling to be something that we really need to start paying attention to as we design these cameras. Um, you know, it's not just that it is functional, but that it is designed to be fun. Um, and uh, you know, and and I think that that goes beyond just its physical form and once again i i would say that the um the camerodactyl color scheme works into that uh camera nugen uh kind of concept um you know the funner it is the more likely we're going to pick it up the more likely we're going to take that picture the more likely we're going to get multiple good images in a day uh, does that make sense to you guys? Yes, it does. And and I yeah, I think though that the the catch is always that people have very, you know different ideas of what that might be and different uses for the same camera. So it always comes out to some kind of compromise, you know, in the end. But right, right, it's yeah, worth working on that. And I've often thought that some adjustability would be a good idea. And we've talked about this on, I think a previous episode, but right. one of the biggest ones is re- left, right eye. And why not have uh viewfinders simply be movable 
I mean, it's easy with with cold shoe viewfinders. You you can actually you know just put it on the other end of the camera. Right. Uh, and it it could be the case with more advanced technology as well that that's doesn't have to be fixed. Yeah, that just gave me an idea of a a, a viewfinder. You know, there's certain you're talking about a cold shoe viewfinder um, for viewfinder cameras, and we're not pretty much set up to do uh, SLR, you know, uh, type of cameras, but, uh, you know, so viewfinder cameras are the type or no viewfinder cameras are the type that we do, but, um, maybe a sliding, uh, viewfinder or a sliding shoe bar, uh, if that makes sense. Like a sure. flash bracket. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. You know, um, and of course the further you slide it off, the more parallax error you get, but, um, you know, if you're doing landscape parallax errors, not at all crucial. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, that would be something, you know, or one of those like camera sliding dollies, you know, that type of thing. So, um, yeah, that would be, that, that would be the most extreme version that I sketched was a, was a donut shaped camera with a, the viewfinder could revolve 360 degrees around the perimeter <laughs> okay or you could so, just look through the hole <laughs> <laughs> well that that would work that would work too except then the lens is off center it's like the opposite of parallax <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but, uh, yeah you might be able to figure out some way to make that useful yeah so um how many cameras out there you were just uh talking about the uh baldina baldessa balda baldessa um, how many cameras out there do you know that have the shutter release on the left side or somewhere other than, uh, right hand, once again, right hand dominant? Boy, I can't think of a single one. What has a left side, what has a left side shutter release? So one of the things that, that often kind of bugs me about ergonomics or just like, um, it's actually ergonomically probably better, but like the, the Baldina and, um, my Kiev sixties have the shutter release button on the front. Um, I know there's a, a whole bunch of cameras that are right side, but they're on the front right. and just looks wrong to me, even though. Yeah. It like, like uh, practice. The Kiev six C. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Right. So the Kiev six C and the Salute version of it, the earlier ones had a left side release. Um, which is huh. kind of nutty. Huh. Um, well, I guess a left, from a left-wing political, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure enough. Well, so maybe yeah. at the, I, I bet, I bet it's, it's a simple way to free up. So if you're cocking with the right side and shooting with the left, it, yes. in theory, it speeds things up. <laughs> it, you know, if, you're, if your brain is wired that way. It looks like the Kiev 60 has a shutter release on both sides. Although one of them, yeah, it looks like it has the... No. Okay. So I, I've got three Kiev 60s here. It's a camera Okay, so I what's what's the little hate. button? What's the little button to the... Uh, if you're looking at the front of it, uh, to the right side of the, um, of the mirror box, there's a button that has a hole in the center of it. Yeah, so that that's actually not a button. That's a mount for oh, a flash okay. bracket. Yeah. Okay, so but the yeah, but the six C's definitely that was where the um, 
the shutter release was for the 6C. I see that. Right, um, exactly. One of the things that I really liked about the um, Fuji GW690 was that it had two shutter releases. It had one down near the lens on the front of the body, and it had has one on the top deck as well. And so if you're turning the camera for a vertical shot, that is very, very handy. And, uh, and I use that quite, I use that button quite often. Um, but, uh, you know, okay. So, so this, this left hand button, why do you suppose they went with that? I'm pretty sure that, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it just had to do with, um, a simpler design. It was like quicker and easier for them to, fit everything in um the left side of the camera basically has you know very little mechanics uh-huh. or actually sorry so um you'll notice on the the kiev the where you would normally see on an slr um the uh rewind uh crank right obviously sure. this doesn't have a rewind crank because it's 120 um that's where the shutter speed selector okay. is so my guess is that's where um, that's where the the sort of shutter timing mechanism is in the top of the camera right there. So it's probably just easier for them to put the release yeah, over there. Um, I bet the newer one has you know a whole bunch of linkages that I have not yet discovered to go from the right side right. to the left. Huh. Interesting. And um, do you suppose that the reason why? It is um, uh, on the the sixty. It's on the the right side is because of complaints. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I don't know that they cared about complaints in uh, <laughs> the Soviet Union, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, on the right side seems way more logical and and like uh, reasonable of a place. But I think you know, I have I have a respect for. Uh, design that was just like, hey, it works, right. <laughs> you know, make it as simple as possible. So is there a, is, does it have right side advance? Is it a knob wind? I don't know what camera you're talking about, actually. So, Oh, um, it's, le- do you know what the left. Pentacon 6 is or the Practice 6 or Exacta 66? Yeah. It's like a, it's one of those, but it's the Russian knockoff. It's like a, looks and, like a 35 millimeter SLR, but just. You know, beefed up to the size of almost a Pentax six seven. And, it and six by six. it's it's a Kiev. What's the last part? Sixty, and the original is a six C, as in uh, okay. Coffee. That's that's what I couldn't hear. Was the sixty and six C sound almost the same? Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. The six C has it. It's um. Oh darn! Maybe it's the Salute sixty or six C. Yeah, it's just, it has. There a, it is. Yeah, it has a top deck. Um, yeah, I see Film it. advance, you know, a lever. Uh, so it also, yeah, on the right. So yeah. they're separating film advance from shutter operation, and I, I that to me that seems like an actual, real, logical reason to do it that way. Um, it, it's not necessarily the solution I would pick, but it, it feels like it actually. Once you got used to it, it would be quite comfortable to advance the film with your right hand and fire with your left because the grip change would be quick. Um, yeah, but then what hand do you use to focus and adjust your aperture? Oh, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So my, f- I'll tell you what, while we're talking about this particular issue, I'll bring up the camera that I shot for 25 years, starting from when I was 16 years old. And that's a Nikromat FTN. And that has an unusual arrangement that I got hardwired in. So I think it's a really it's a great, great arrangement, a really great arrangement. And that's that your left hand controls focus, aperture and shutter speed. And the way things are laid out, you actually, that's much easier than it sounds. Your thumb controls the shutter speed and, you know, your uh, one set of fingers focuses and another set runs the aperture. So you can set the camera really fast and your right hand simply cocks and fires. And that division of labor seems really practical, whereas changing hands in the middle of something doesn't, you know, so. Where's the shutter speed dial on a micromat? it's around the lens, and so when you change okay. the lens, it stays on the camera, but but it feels like it's part of the lens controls. So that's so like you, the... You've got um, that steady left hand steadying the lens and controlling uh, everything to do with exposure and focus, and right hand controlling everything to do with film transport and exposure. There, There's a logic there that actually fits the way you use the camera, not just the what you're... So what I guess I'm getting to here is that you're, you can learn to handle all different configurations, and when you're done learning them, does the camera then function better is the question to ask. Um, instead of trying to pamper people with like a perfect setup, you try and train them to use a camera in a way that will be the most efficient. So right. th- there's sort of two sides to this argument, and uh, and I like the way... And Olympus did the same thing. They yes. put the, the shutter speed on the lens and you have that same division of labor between left and right side and it keeps your hands in the same position which keeps the the camera very stable and uh-huh. i don't know i think it's i think it's effective and i think a lot of these changes came with single lens reflex cameras because now that you're peering through the lens and fretting over the fine details of uh composition because you can actually see you know the whole exact frame and parallax isn't an issue and all that it it changes kind of the way you you feel i think slrs suck people inside the viewfinder into this and so that they're sort of in like kind of obsessing over the details of a photograph instead of looking at the big picture which is why i kind of prefer uh viewfinders a lot of the time because you you're not inside the camera you're outside the camera looking at the world and just sort of pointing it you know right that it's a really different orientation in, in your in the way you shoot and i think a lot of camera evolution was driven by this, the you know, the single lens reflex experience, which I think can be kind of claustrophobic after a while, even yeah, though yeah, I'm really yeah. used to it. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that's that's really important in that situation is making sure that you have information within that viewfinder that is relevant. Um, you know, uh, having shutter speed. You know, match needle is great. I don't have any problem with match needle. The problem is that you can go down to a 15th of a second um, without knowing it um, with match needle. Uh, you know, you can, right, but you of can course, overshoot. Of course, the, the Nikromat told you the shutter speed. Yeah. Just, you just could literally see the, the speed in there. And, and, and that's important. That, that solved that. Right. Yeah. And I still prefer that old solution where you just can read the speed and do match needle. Then I do the cameras that that have the, you know, the stack of shutter speeds and a little LED zooming up and down. Like for some reason that just feels less intuitive and more distracting to me. Right. Um, 
so that actually kind of brings up part of what I am, uh, you know, part of part of this discussion, and that is the idea of uh, having, you know, those eye to camera controls, uh, you know, the aperture, the shutter speed, all of those things in your field of view, all those little bits of information in your field of view as you frame. And um, often in, even in um, cameras like um, the um, the Bessa R3M that I have, uh, it just has your, um, it doesn't have the shutter speed listed. It has the, you know, it's just a match needle in the form of LEDs, right? Um, so having, having more of that information in that viewfinder, the better off we're going to be. Um, so that's, that's very arguable though. Uh, There are a whole, there's a whole school of thought that doesn't want to be distracted by any of that. Um, I think that's a personal choice. Okay. Sure. And I, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how I come down on that. I, I like having all that information and I get in trouble when I don't have it. But when you resolve all those problems and you look through a clean viewfinder with nothing in it, that's also kind of freeing. I agree. Because you're paying attention to the subject instead of to relatively minor you know, details like focusing and setting the exposure. Like, that shouldn't have to be you know, the whole thing. Right. It should be kind of out of your way. Yeah. Well, so and- a lot of people now just go to automatic, um, automatic everything. And that's kind of funny because the modern camera especially the mirrorless ones present you with like huge volumes of information in the viewfinder. And on top of that, you just press the button and it does all the thinking for you and you don't actually need any of that information. Right. (laughs) That's in there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Just as, yeah. um, Yeah. Just as long as, uh, as you do have that exposure controlled in one way or another. So um, we're, we're talking about, in this situation, we're talking about the information that's visible through the viewfinder. And when things are visible through the viewfinder, um, then we've, uh, you know, we hold things to our eye um, as we're taking the picture. But if we have things that are not necessarily visible in the viewfinder, um, so we don't have shutter speed, we don't have any of those other things, um, we often have to pull back, pull the pull pull the camera away from our faces, and we have to make those adjustments and then come back to it. So it's a multi-step before we take that picture, and um, uh, we can even go further. You know, when we have like waist level finders, um, where it, it you know one of the advantages of waist level finder is that um, you're looking down at the camera as opposed to looking out at the subject and looking out through the camera. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's part of, part of the, uh, you know, deal. One of, uh, have you guys, uh, Nick, you like TLR. So I'm guessing that you've shot a lot of waist level finders. Um, Ethan, have you shot, shot a lot? Uh, yeah, so actually the Kiev 60 for years and years before I started buying and selling cameras, um, was one of my favorites and, um, uh, 
I used that with a waist level finder, which I recently broke. Uh, I'll have to find or make another one. And then my Hasselblad 500CM is one of my favorites. I, you know, I've, I've had prisms for them, but I feel like, um, I really like waist level finders. I'm often looking down at people, uh, from eye level and I, I don't like that as much for portraiture. Uh, people are usually shorter than me. Um, kind of like being under their nose a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I, I love how it looks. Um, pleasurable to use for me. So I have actually several different, um, versions of waist level finders but the only two true TLRs and of those, the Roloflex is by far the best. And one of the things about it is that it's designed so that you can read shutter speed and aperture while looking down from above. Uh, and just, you just turn a wheel with each thumb and adjust those two things with a clear view while you're looking down. I like that a lot. Same thing with Roly 35. Um, even though that's a little viewfinder camera, they set it up for that same, uh, looking down to see the settings. And it's, I like it a lot. It, it, and it helps, it also helps you do the two stages. In other words, get your settings and then compose and shoot as two separate operations without them kind of simultaneously impinging on your consciousness. And I think that's really useful. And it, that you, it sort of forces you to pre-prepare and then you can only think about what's important, which is framing and composition and timing and stuff. That, that's really how I use my Leica. I have an M4 that I use quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll just sort of look down, uh, you know, while it's hanging on my uh, chest and set the aperture and shutter speed and, you know, pre-scale focus. And then, you know, pretty quickly in, in the fraction of a second, I can sort of pick it up and take a shot without uh, thinking about any of those things. Right. Yep. And now, um, Ethan, you, you mentioned that, um, you get a different angle of view um, from the camera when you're when you're using a waist level finder, um, even though your waist may be um, you know chest high on on the rest of us. Um, <laughs> uh, so I mean that was part of uh, I think the uh, appeal of uh, oh why I've just lost her name the TLR woman from Chicago uh, that everybody's Vivian Meyer Vivian Meyer. Much. Um, and I, I think that that was part of the appeal of the photographs and, and especially the generation that discovered her, um, is that it's a non TLR generation, right? It's, um, it's a generation of experiencing the world through, um, eye level finders, um, and eye level cameras and this different, right. Angle. And actually it's, uh, it's. It's also eye level at arm's length. Like you, you. It's really difficult oh, right. to shoot a phone at waist level. In fact, we should just come up with a little mirror that you can, <laughs> that you sure. can snap onto your phone <laughs> or an articulating screen. You know, I'm sure somebody's working on that. Um, for well, uh, you'd want the you'd want an articulating lens. I mean, I think that would be simpler. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I. I've been teaching this uh, photo class down at the Makerspace just to get people more involved sure. in the darkroom and such. And I would say anybody who is under like 25, I have to tell them, you, you got to put the camera right up to your face. They kind of like look at it, you know, right. try and peep through the hole at arm's length and just <laughs> don't get it. Uh, they've been trained on iPhones for so long. Yeah. On the other hand, 
on the other hand, I know quite a few people from the baby boomer generation that have the same problem because they haven't picked up a camera in 40 years. Yeah. And, it, you know, they're all, they're, all, they're all holding the thing out at arm's length, too, because uh, it's got a screen, so that's what you look at. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I was just watching a, a TV show. Um, it's, uh, the early years of the detective from prime suspect and it's called prime suspect Tennyson and it's on, uh, Amazon prime. And, um, the, there, there's a crime scene and somebody comes in with a Graflex, uh, press camera and shoots a picture and then moves and shoots another picture and has not changed, you know, has not pulled out this, the dark slide, hasn't pulled out the film, you know. So <laughs> that was a nice double exposure. I don't know whether it'll hold up in court or not. But, um, you know, I, I, I do like that. And part of the deal about those different types of things, you know, of course, we're, you know, we're camera nerds, right? Um, you know, you can't do it like that, right? But part of part of the idea is that that kind of experience it has left the general populace, right? Um, there was a an ad that was running uh, several years ago, and it was I think it was a pharmaceutical ad, but it had um, you know some kids in the 1970s, and one of the kids had an Instamatic. And she was pressing the shutter and pressing the shutter and pressing the shutter and not winding the camera. And it was, you know, because that's what her experience is, right? Um, so, you know, that is just as much part of what we're talking about with industrial design as anything else. You know, um, uh, beginning in, let's just say 2000, uh, beginning this millennium, this century, um, you know, cameras wind themselves or it's digital and, and no wind is needed. Right. So we have to, they're still using, they're still using soundtracks made in the nineties on uh, cameras in right. the present mm-hmm. though on movies. Like they, <laughs> the people who do the soundtracks haven't all it's, read right. that memo. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like the one phone sound, right? It's the one audio clip that everybody uses for an old phone that has a bell in it. You know, and you, you right. know, and you hear it on people's iPhones um, all the time and then you see it in a movie and it's exactly that same sound. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we because of that, you know, that need to advance the film, we have to think about that. We have to think about how we advance the film and make it easy. And, you know, one of the big failures of the my 63 camera was, you know, you could advance the film fine. You just couldn't see where you were advancing it to. And and um, so, you know, I'm in the process of redesigning that. That's, that's you know, it's backburnered right now. But, um, you know, that, that that's part of it. That's part of the ergonomics. That's part of the industrial design is not only do you have to advance the film easily, but you have to see whether or not you've advanced it properly, you know, if you're using backing paper, uh, you know, a, a window with backing paper, uh, or you have to have some sort of signal that, you know, if it's a ratchet lever system, you have to have some sort of signal that, yes, you've reached the end of that 
um, advance need, right? You know, uh, you, you've fully advanced it and you're on to the next frame. So, you know, that's all, that's all part of that. Um, you know, um, one of the, one of the things, one of my ways of taking picture, uh, taking pictures is driving around, you know, so I'm in my car and often I'll come to a stoplight and I'll look over and I just love looking at the industrial design of trucks. Um, you know, I love the, you know, the, and then they go out in the world and they get, you know, scratched and dented and, and used. Um, and so do you mean, do you mean like real, real commercial yeah, trucks yeah, or yeah, are you yeah. talking semi, about the, semi trucks, the, the, the personality extension pickup trucks no, that don't no. actually have any, no, not the social plumage, <laughs> uh, uh, trucks. Um, right. you, you know, the, I, I live in a logging area, so, uh, a, a, you know, paper making area. So there are lots of log trucks and those in particular, uh, show their work. And so I'm sitting, you know, I'll come to a stoplight and maybe it'll be in a, a turn lane and I'll look to see whether or not I have time to even roll down my window and get out my camera and, you know, set the exposure and, you know, Whereas if I just pulled out my phone, click, I could, you know, I could get that picture every time. And so the speed of that image making is something that, you know, it, it, that we have to think about as we, as we design these cameras. So, so here's my last question to you guys. So how do you make a camera enjoyable to use? What are you guys looking for with an enjoyable to use camera? So I think I if I was going to try and if I was going to try and sum it all up it would be it would be that the thing should get out of my way. Uh you know that's okay. kind of that that's one of the things you hear a lot um and I and I go along with that. I I don't mind a certain amount of awkwardness if it's something you can learn to work with. But once you've learned to work with it you shouldn't be thinking about the camera you should be thinking about the subject. And that's that's interesting because it kind of takes me in two directions. In one direction is to make the camera very, very simple so that all I'm doing is framing and pushing a button. And the other direction is to provide all kinds of information at your fingertips or however you want to put it so that, you know, for instance, I prefer digital cameras that have knobs and dials on the outside of it, like a Fuji, uh, because I don't have to go searching around in menus, which change from model to model. And, you know, that's just annoying. It's nice to be able to just see what you want, adjust it and go. I like that yeah. simplicity. But I, I will it's... say, I um, and, and I, I don't mean to cut you off there. I had the um, <laughs> the first Canon uh, mirrorless, uh, interchangeable uh, mirrorless, the uh, EOS M. And I had to get rid of it simply because you had to use the menu on the screen to set shutter speed, to set aperture, <laughs> Right. you know, and it right. was, it was just too much. And of course, if you're trying, you know, if there's a, if there's a shot that's just about to go away, you're, you're going to hit the wrong button. Um, you know, uh, and I'm going to guarantee it. I, I'll just guarantee that you're going to hit the wrong button. Um, but the, um, uh, it, it's, 
Yeah, so those dials, those immediately accessible things are very, very important. I'll certainly agree with you there. Uh, and uh, did you have more there? I'm sorry, I cut you off on that. No, I just, it sums it up is 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 that I don't like distractions. I think that's, you know, that non-distracting. And, and then for me, the other, the other, I guess this would be my other pet peeve as well is I'm farsighted. As you get older, you can't yeah. see anything that's within arm's reach. And so if it, if it doesn't have big numbers, then it does have to be something you can see through the viewfinder so that you're, you, you're physically able to focus on whatever the information may be. Right. And that's a problem I do have. I love a lot of the old, old folding cameras, but I can't read the, any of the settings on most of those, you know, tiny little lenses with tiny little dials. And that, that is a, a hassle and it forces me to preset and then just go with it. And that's got some advantages like, I don't dislike that part of it, but it would be nice if I didn't have to put on my glasses to see what the heck was going on. Right. Right. Uh, how about you, Ethan? What do you, what, what makes an enjoyable camera for you? Yeah, I think, um, I'm with Nick on this one is, is a camera that gets out of your way. And, uh, I would agree with just about everything Nick said, except for the, I, I still have uh pretty nearsightedness. I can see tiny numbers, um, but the the one big one is that like uh, I trust it. Um, I get I get a lot of semi working cameras, and it really uh, it will just gnaw at me while I'm out shooting uh, if I don't you know think that it's light tight or or I don't think that some of the shutter speeds are functioning properly or the aperture is closing down quickly mm-hmm. enough, and uh, it'll just you know, bug me until I get it back home and take it all apart, put it back together and make sure it's working. And so, um, it's, I find it to be a real distraction when I don't trust that the camera is actually Mm -hmm. working, um, which is maybe less camera design than, than Ethan collecting a pile of (laughs) semi-working and broken cameras. Right. Right. Um, I have, uh, uh, one of my favorite cameras that I've ever owned is an Olympus, 35 SPN and it is uh it, it's a fixed lens rangefinder and a lot of people you know have have referred to it as the poor man's Leica and because of the sharpness of the lens it's a very 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 sharp lens and uh I took it out shooting uh recently cuz I hadn't had it out in a year and uh and I wanted to make sure that it was still working with the idea of maybe I'm I'm going to sell it on and um i i eventually realized that that the the uh i i had it set to automatic and i realized that the battery wasn't working in it you know and and then it was just like ugh, i it, you know then i didn't trust it and then you know i i set it to manual cuz you can set it to manual and then i didn't trust it again for that which was is ridiculous uh so i know exactly what you're saying um, uh, I, I, I follow that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have, I have the same feelings about my yeah. Yashica electros. I've got a GX and a CC and, uh, a GSN and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't always trust them. And for that reason, I don't use them even though they are very, very nice cameras.
one of the things that we do uh, when we're making cameras is, uh, you know, part of part of the deal is that generally we're we're kind of stuck with the material that we are building them out of, you know, and that can be wood, metal, plastic, whatever. But the camera manufacturers of yore um, are certainly they they had no problem adding different surfaces to their cameras. So the classic is the leatherette, you know, uh, little pieces of maybe leather or, uh, you know, uh, like you use the vulcanite, which is a rubberized compound, um, different, uh, cameras, you know, the, the cameras of the nineties were all about that tactile metal, right? You know, they were about the the titanium uh, or brushed uh, metal, um, and um, so right. Those... And oh. sometimes it went back farther. The thirty five millimeter cameras from Germany, a lot of those went pretty fast to the beauty of beautiful metals, like the Voigtlanders and Zeiss, and right? Some of those cameras. So that starts in the fifties. Yeah, uh, I had a um, Voigtlander Ultramatic. That had, that was, you know, it was essentially chrome, you know, um, and mm-hmm. and uh, I guess at that point, 70 years on from its manufacture, probably, you know, 65, 70 years on that chrome was pristine. I mean, no scratches, um, you know, yep. no rust. Um, it was pristine. And um, it, the camera didn't work. <laughs> you know, the shutter was jammed. Uh, but but that uh, that surface was pristine and it was long lasting. Um, now then, I think it's probably the best surface until you hit about forty five degrees Fahrenheit and below, and, and right. all of a sudden it's it's not so great, <laughs> right? Or it's it's sitting in your car in the sun, um, and then you you know you have to hot potato it uh, for a while, and and your film is is <laughs> you know is a bit ruined, right? Um, so, you know, um, we've got um, th- those different surfaces, you know, kind of serve, serve some, some function. Um, one of them is to provide uh, a, a surface that, that our fingers can grip, right? So it's not drop. Um, and leather does that fairly well. Um, uh, and, the, uh, and so does, you know, uh, the leatherette. Um, and, uh, vulcanite kind of surface. Um, so, uh, so that is, you know, uh, so that serves a purpose, but it also serves, you know, that other decorative purpose, that, that visual purpose of, uh, you know, you can swap that leather out for exotic leathers, uh, or fake exotic leathers. Um, you, you know, you can, um, uh, one of the things that I've seen often is, um, the wood grain tape or wood grain, you know, duct tape or wood grain, um, uh, I guess vinyl, um, that people are putting on those cameras that, that actually to me looks very good. I'm not sure what it's, what it, what it's like to, to, you know feel and hold 
but that is I kind of have you a know, I have a problem with that a lot of the time. You're talking about veneer very often, right? Well, so it's a very thin slice, thin, it's or, a thin slice of wood, and the it which has a certain kind of grain presentation. And I, I have a problem with that that comes from being someone who makes things traditionally a, a lot of the time. And when something is made to look like wood, but it's an improbable material choice for the function. And for the proportion, it disturbs (laughs) me. So like looking at a a structure that has to be made of metal and has a very thin skim of wood over it, when I see it, I think, well, that's got to be, that's either solid wood or it's fake. Like it just rings, it rings untrue to me and it bothers me. Kind of like Um, on uh, cars design in the 80s. aesthetic, but it... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, kind of like car design in the 80s. I remember oh, Chrysler well, uh, brought... almost any design in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, that that was a that was a time where there was a lot of design where it was like purposely meant to be a joke, you know, so architects would put windows in the corners of the house where support columns would normally be. Right. And, and it was it was a way to say we can we use modern structure so we don't have to pay attention to traditional structure and we can do everything backwards and have, you know, a transparent, weak material where the structure is supposed to be. And it's just, it's just making a joke. It doesn't actually necessarily look good or make sense. It's, it's just sort of an in-joke. And, and I kind of feel that way about all the materials use. If it doesn't make sense, if it isn't true to the material, it rings, uh, rings a little false to me and it does put me off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll definitely go with that. Um, but but on the other hand, I think in a, in some cases that denial of structure is kind of a a, a luxury feel, right? Um, it, it's that sure, higher sure. end, it's like long fingernails. It's sure. long fingernails in in a mechanical form. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Ab- absolutely. So I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can, I can definitely follow um, uh, your logic uh, on that. Um, I um, bought a Leica M2 um, on eBay, and uh, it, it was the Vulcanite was was powder. You know, it was it was popping off. It was half off the camera. And I, um, there's a, there's somebody on eBay and I can't remember, uh, it's like cameraleather.com or some, or maybe it wasn't even on eBay. Um, but it was from the cameraleather.com, uh, uh, website. And, um, I, I ordered this stuff called grip tack and grip tack is, um, is a, a rubbery surface that is very secure in your hands. It, it, it is, it's a little bit soft and it has, uh, probably, you know, probably about the best surface if you want to grip something. I mean, you know, that's its name, right? Um, and not only did it cosmetically upgrade that camera, it functionally upgraded that camera, um, for a while, I had, uh, you know, I'd taken off the um, the Vulcanite. I had scraped it all off and and uh, wiped down the the um, the adhesive off of it, 
And and I kind of like that that industrial look that I had, but the camera was not really secure in my hand. So uh, using that grip tack, which was an ad- is an adhesive material, um, just absolutely upgraded that camera. Um, at least in in my estimation, you know, it's uh, it could be you know uh, the equivalent for some people of of repainting a uh, you know repainting a, a vintage car. You know, it's only in original condition once, right? It's only got original paint once. Um, so, uh, so I thought that that surface was, was something and I, you know, it could certainly be used on, uh, the cameras that we build, um, uh, to take them past the Bauhaus material, right? Uh, to take them past the, the, the functional structural material and, uh, start making them, you know, uh, a little bit more, user-friendly and visually um, uh, user-friendly. So I'm going to suggest uh, that in following that suggestion, you put that grip tack just where it's needed. So I have the opposite story to tell. I have a Fujifilm X Pro 1 that I've had since it was brand new, and I used it so hard and so often that a lot of the rubber grippy surfaces just came unglued. And I think I just cooked them off with my hot little hands. And I found that I just like the camera better without them. And now the, the my major grip for my right hand is bare metal. Um, and it the camera is smaller, fits my hand better. I have no absolutely no more tendency to drop it without that grippy rubber on it than I did before. And I, I'm just leaving it off because I actually like the camera better without that. Uh, well, there's still some uh, texture left in a few spots, but the main place that I grip it with my right hand is smooth now, um, and it's just fine. And and how much of it is function, and how much of it is the visual appearance that gives you more appeal on that? Just function. It it looks worse, which doesn't bother me. I mean, I kind of like using cameras that look, you know, past past their uh, prime because they're less intimidating perhaps or less valuable looking that doesn't really that's an improvement from my perspective because it looks worse but isn't what what i'm concerned with what i'm concerned with is that it's it's it feels better in my hand this this light metal it's smaller so that this rubberized grip was actually pretty thick so the camera you know feels better when it's thinner and that's that's just my hand somebody else might not agree but so what do you guys think about um that rubber material that they used on a lot of lenses, and I'm thinking Sigma in particular. I don't know if you guys had any of the early autofocus Sigmas. Yuck! But that was that was a nice. Yeah, well, it was a really nice rubber for about five years, and then it started getting <laughs> sticky. Um, yes. So uh, there are a couple of things about that. Now, if your business is selling lenses. Then, you know, that lens is, can still be perfectly functional, but somebody's still got to buy a new lens, right? Because you don't want to touch it. You know, one, a lot, you can, some of those cameras, that rubber is just a thin layer. You can take it off. So right. I, I have some old Vivitar lenses where the rubber grips fell off long ago and it made them much less expensive. Yeah. And I think they're, they handle fine. 
you know. Yeah, and uh, the the thing that I most appreciate in in lens control is not so much the material as the braille. So you should be able to tell focus from aperture from whatever really easily by touch. And yeah. that is um that's best achieved in my opinion when you have some sort of neuraled pattern that's really distinctive. Uh, Nikon was good at doing that, you know, so that the different controls, you would just be able to tell immediately by fingertip what it was you were about to do. Right. And, uh, yeah, um, shutter speed. So that's kind of a Braille solution. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's something, um, in 3d printing that neural pattern is relatively easy. Um, and, uh, um, you know, much more difficult if you're making it out of wood or, um, or metal. Uh, I mean, you have to run it through and, and grind that pattern in. Um, but it, you know, so it's, that's a, it certainly that's a, can be done. That's a suggestion for Ethan. So the, he's working on butter grips for the right hand, but you could create, there might be some problem lenses out there, um, where you could create a better grip for the focus ring or something that would make it i've heard of people just putting a rubber band around hard to feel uh focus rings so that you can then you know tell the tell what you're doing right easily yeah i've done that a bunch i've had a bunch of those old sigma lenses where the rubber comes off and really what what comes to mind mostly is like the nikon f5 and the uh, nikon f100 where um, you know, it has that really nice sort of grip tack rubber, but, uh, yeah, five to 10 years yeah. later, it becomes sort of a gooey peel. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, uh, what gives a, a very strong appeal at the beginning becomes detrimental to the m- machine at the end. Right. Um, but one of the things that, that, you know, I mean, we all see this in, in camera, uh, design, you know, those of us who, who like old cameras, you know, um, you, you know, we've got the cameras that were designed to last longer than the person who designed them and built them, uh, will last. And then we've got the cameras that are designed to last five years and need replacement. Um, you know, uh, the plastic bodied SLRs of the eighties, you know, are, uh, or in the 90s were, you know, a, a perfect example of quick replacement items. Um, and, you know, and that's that's as much of the design from the beginning as possible. And one, one of the things I, I'm constantly thinking of as I 3D print cameras is these aren't going to last, you know, these aren't going to last decades. These are going to last years. Um, you know, or months, depending on how heavily they're used. I think, I think you can make them, I think you can make them to last 20, 30 years. So, so, so for instance, the, this, oh, this Camerodactyl OG is going to last a very long time. And the, the first thing to wear out will be the, uh, you know, the focusing helical, but that's got an adjustment. So it could yeah. wear quite a bit and you could keep tightening it. So I don't know. I, I might even have a hard time wearing that out. Uh, because because there's an adjustment and and I, before we lose track of this, I was just thinking. So you know, on rangefinder cameras, there's very often a a little tab that your finger can find to control focus, and that 
it does help you identify what is, you know, what is the focus ring, but it also does something else, which is it, it gives you a direct uh, read on where you are in the focus range. And so instead of just being a continuously turning dial, if you have a short enough focus throw and you can just push this knob back and forth, after a while, your body knows whether you're focusing close or far without even having to look because of the position and being able to read that position. There's an infinity stop at one end and a, you know, as close focus stop at the other. And then in between, it's like reading the position of the hands on a clock. You, you know where you are in the range. And that that's extremely useful. And, and I do believe that I do believe they make uh, add-on focus tabs for some lenses, so so that you, if you picture a strap that can go around the the uh, the lens and tighten up, and then there's a knob on it for your hand. And, and and I'm thinking of how to design such a thing. It would really make sense to make something that like was like a, a bracelet that opened up. And then the part that fastened it and tightened it onto the lens would be in that focusing knob, so you could make something really compact. Um, it would it it's a. That's actually on my list go. of things to make my uh, M4. I have like a thirty-five millimeter Summicron on it, which has lost um, most of its focus tab. Um, and you know the thing you were talking about, I think. Hasselblad made a quick focus lever, which was exactly that. It was a, um, you know, like a bracelet that goes around the focus ring of the lens. And then, um, you know, it had just like a little arm. And some of them later on or earlier on, I forget which versions, had like a fold-out arm. So you could sort of grab it and move it like a cine lens type of thing. Yeah, that's an underused. And I think with a lot of... You know, some of the SLR lenses have too much focus throw, and, and that becomes awkward. Um, but any lens with a fairly short throw, I think, it could be improved by having that that feature. most important things I think about industrial design is having something that looks like what it does, unless you are specifically trying to, you know, uh, camouflage that function, you know? So if you have a hidden camera, you know, you, you want it to look like something else. But if you, if you're designing something it really needs to look like what it is. So I'm I'm going to give a So a, that's 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 the essence of this camera. It's that it's right. just a plastic box, but it looks like it's a camera. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and that's <laughs> you know, uh that that's its success. That's the only way you could get that um uh you know, that to be successful is is to have it look like that. So I'm going to give an industrial design example. And so, and people who are at home, you can play along with this one. If you're driving, look it up later. So I'm going to send you guys to Google Images, and I want you to type in Subaru Tribeca 2007 and look at the vehicle. 
And, um, you know, one of the, this is a, a, a great example of industrial design that needed to be changed. Subaru designed this vehicle with the idea that they were going to take advantage of the SUV market. And the first version of the car, the 2007 model, uh, I think it actually came out some places in 2005 and six, but I think in the U.S. it was 2007. Um, they started to sell it here and people looked at it and they said, well, that's not an SUV. It has a sloping front hood, just like a Dodge Caravan. So it's a minivan. It is not an SUV, even though it had all wheel drive and, you know, all that type of stuff. So they, now the next thing to type in is Subaru Tribeca 2008. And you can see what they did to change the design. First of all, seriously, they made it uglier. But they raised the hood so that it wasn't sloping, but it was instead, you know, uh, much more horizontal the way we expect an SUV to be. And sales were much better after that. So part of the, this is an illustration of the concept of it needs to look like what it does. And when things look like that, what that, they that's, do... That's a case of... It, I'm sorry, but that's a case of it needing to look like it does just for sales purposes, yeah. not for any mm-hmm. practical reason. Right. Oh, absolutely. That's an, that's in, uh, exactly what I'm talking about. You you know, if, if you want somebody to... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's... It, this is just camouflage. That that change in the front end of that car was simply camouflage, uh, and it's simply a change to make it it better fit what the expectation of the market is. Right. Uh, so so what what you, what you're describing is a detailed look at this, but the whole business of making cars is this is the same thing. I mean, what a car is, is a device for destroying life on the planet, but it's not, it's not designed in such a way that it reveals its true purpose because then it wouldn't sell as well. Right. Right. I mean, if it it looked like some sort of, you know, evil orc monster, there would still be people who would want it, um, but it would be harder to sell. Yeah. And if it had, if it had like warning stickers near the tailpipe that said, you know, toxic gas. Stay clear. Oh man, right. you guys don't know the coal rollers out here. I think they would love. Oh it. yeah, they would. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. No, actually, and I'm sure that in fact plays into the design. I've noticed that the modern trucks make the tailpipe very big, and they get it up higher, closer to your nose. And I'm absolutely even sure that's on purpose. Or yeah, or the yeah, the, and they put the pipe coming up through the bed of the pickup. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, and um, you know, that's part of the deal. They're they're making it look like what they want it to be, right? They're making it look like a bigger, more powerful device than it is um through that change in industrial design and yeah. Yeah, the coal roller. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I'm definitely not a coal roller. Um but it, it, so the idea of this is, you know, different different cameras. You know, in SLR, we expect it to be 
um, you know, we expect the 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 knob on top and or you know the knobs on top, the rewind, um, you know the the um, uh, camera or excuse me, sorry the the mirror box. You know, one of my favorite things is you know the industrial design of uh, your new camera, uh, Nick the XT two. It's got mm-hmm. a it's got a mirror box, but it doesn't, but it's a mirrorless camera, right? It's got that hump sure. for it, the it, mirror box. Right. And, yep. and, and it's, it's, it's not, it's not a requirement because they also make cameras that are identical, except that they don't have the mirror box. Right. Um, and it, it's, you know, it, it's, um, okay. Um, you know, another example of that is, uh, in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, when the bigger your car was, the more affluent you were. Um, uh, we, uh, my family, when I was in grade school, um, inherited, not inherited, uh, had a, as a hand-me-down car, my grandparents' 1972 Chrysler Newport. And that had a 440 in it, which is a huge engine. But there was, from the front of the engine, from the fan on the engine, to the front of the bumper was four feet. And most of that was empty space. Right? So the appearance Mm -hmm. of that is that this is a big car. And it was physically a big car, but it wasn't a big solid block. You know, well, I guess it was compared to cars today, but it, that that gap was just length. It was non-functioning length. It was non. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nothing that needed to be that that distance out from the front of the engine. There was no functional need for that, but it had that visually apparent function, which is I'm an affluent person because I have a big car. Right. Um, yeah, when it's same same applies for the rocket fins and the and right. The, you know the the spoilers on a lot of little right. little sporty cars and yeah. all of that. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, we were just talking about the Fuji cameras. You know, there's that there's the idea of okay, so the Fuji XE2 that I'm borrowing from you has a very boxy. Though the you know the edges are rounded, but it has a very boxy shape um, versus the XT2 that you have. <laughs> ah, these names—they should have called them Bob. Well, it's a more. Cur- it's a little. Yeah, it's a little more. Cur- it's a little more curvy and, and has that like sort of ergonomic flair that um, that you're talking about. Right. Uh, right. Which is a which is a t- which is more in the tradition of modern. Uh, single lens reflex style cameras, right? That there are sort of these odd looking gumdrops that fit your hand, as opposed to the the more kind of clean modernist uh, rectangular box, right? One of the... uh, and I could I could see that there's two things going on. There's one thing which is genuine efficiency, like a box is cheaper to build, uh, but there's also this appearance idea that it looks it looks clean and spare and sort of puritanical. And that appeals to some people as well. I, I'm going to say that that is entirely the appeal to me of the Sony Seven uh, uh, Alpha Seven series. I love the squared 
and um, you know that the camera mount with that little orange um, anodized aluminum, you know, uh, uh, lens mount is that it is squared off. It's like you know we're just making this to do good. You know, we're not making this to look good, even though that's what they're doing, right? Um, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of, one of my favorite uh, uh, movies of all time. I, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm a hockey fan, and Slapshot is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it, it, have you guys seen that movie? I'm I'm gonna guess. It's yeah, it's a great film. Yes. Okay, Ethan, have you seen it? Have okay. Not. No. There's a scene. Uh, you know. Okay. So the plot of the story is this ragtag team kind of turns into a bunch of goons. And it fights their way up the standings um, as as goons, as fighting, as a fighting team. And mm-hmm. there's one point where the coach played by Paul Newman comes out to the uh, to the bus, and the bus driver it has a sledgehammer and he's beating up the bus with a sledgehammer, and he says, "Well, what are you doing? What are you doing?" And the bus driver says, "I'm making it look mean." You know, um, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing, you know, I mean, that's industrial design, right? I'm, I'm making it look like something, you know, it's aftermarket design, but it's still that same type of thing. Um, one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot is, um, and, uh, Nick, you've been talking about doing, you know, making a camera out of fiberglass, and, you know, being able mm-hmm. to, to, to make maybe more organic shapes. And I'm just thinking about the same right. thing, but with carbon fiber, right? Um, you know, that whole, um, <laughs> the dashboard. Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not so, I'm not so much thinking about fiberglass as about fabric, but fabric. it's the same idea. Sure, you make sure. some, some sort of, some sort of hardening resin with some sort of woven material. Right. And, yeah. Right. So it's a fiber and, and that resin, you know, um. My my last Subaru, I had a 2015 Subaru WRX STI, and the dash had some trim on it that was carbon fiber. You know, it had, uh, or at least it had a weave that made it look like the like carbon fiber. And that's probably yeah, that's probably what. I'm... Right, you know, I mean, so it was carbon fiber esque. You know, there was no need for carbon fiber in that location, other than the look. That says, "Hey, this is high tech, cutting edge." But what about? Yeah, you probably don't even need a dashboard, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, uh, what about that type? You know, uh, the okay. So part of part of my little section that I've written up here, and this was something that um, a couple of episodes ago was something I was trying to get at. And that is that the material, you know, uh, to, to paraphrase, um, oh, the media lab guy, I can't think of what his name is. Uh, you know, his was the medium is the message. And, uh, you're thinking of Marshall McLuhan. I am exactly. Thank you very much for coming up with his name. Um, the, but the material is the message in a lot of, these, um, you know, a lot of the cameras, you know, and that was, you know, the, the one comment that Matt Marash had about, um, uh, 
you know, when he was talking at the Finley walking workshop, um, yeah, uh, over the summer, you know, when they were, when they broadcast those episodes, you know, there was, they were talking about large format and, and at one point, you know, he says, don't buy plastic large format cameras, you know, which, uh, I kind of bristled to, shall we say, um, uh, it, 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 it actually brought up, um, my favorite Marilyn Manson quote of all time, favorite, favorite, uh, lyric of all time. And that was, I wasn't born with enough middle fingers, but, um, the, <laughs> you know, his, his comment, you know, that's exactly, he's reacting to what I'm talking about right here, where the material is the message. He sees plastic as cheap. He sees plastic as non-functioning. He sees plastic as lesser. Whereas, sure, I'm hoping to yes, change that. right. And I think <laughs> well, so I was yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, you're talking about the medium, the material being the message, and there's there's a there's a current camera designer who takes that farther than anyone I've ever seen, <laughs> and he's on this phone call. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? oh. <laughs> and and he's not the, talking the, about the, me, folks. The, the thing to the thing to do sometimes is if you want it, I think it's actually a really brilliant approach. If you want to use a material that's been previously considered wrong, instead of trying to can camouflage it, you just take it to the fullest extreme so that so people have to get over it or you know or deal with it because <laughs> if you're going to use. Uh, plastic you should celebrate that and it's also a design issue because there's been there's always and we've talked about this before there's always a tendency for historical design to persist even after materials have changed and made the historical design irrelevant and that's what we see now with a lot of cameras they're still trying to look like what people imagine a camera to be when most of the time there's absolutely no need for it you can put the whole camera and the whole computer into a tiny little slab of glass. Right. You don't need to make, you know, most of the shapes that we see anymore. Yeah, um, we we it, don't need the four feet com- at the front of the car. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes me think of a couple of things. Is one, I don't know if you guys are big Star Trek fans, but I remember being a kid and watching. I think it was Star Trek Voyager, and their cameras basically looked like iPads. You right. Know? 10 years mm-hmm. before an iPad was a thing. I thought that was so weird and, and interesting. And even the other, that was <laughs> although I have, I, I have to point out that while an iPhone is a fantastic camera, an iPad is an absolutely terrible camera. <laughs> <I've tried> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, the other one I was thinking of, of somebody who takes the material way far out there is uh brendan barry i think he's brendan oh, barry sure. photo on instagram and he makes cameras out of watermelons and pineapples and old books and turtles right. and, uh i just i think that's really great it's very inspirational to me mm-hmm. and then i also want to mention i also want to mention while we're talking about plastic cameras that they've been around for a really long time if you notice the century graphic it's uh one of the speed and crown graphic family of Graflex press cameras. The Sentry graphic is a hundred, almost all made of plastic. And you can't tell it apart until you're like, you know, touching it. It looks just like the wooden ones because those are covered with a black leather. And the Sentry graphic is, you know, it's a black plastic with enough texture and right. the structure is basically identical. 
And the fact is that that is a good, long-lasting, sturdy plastic, which very likely will last longer than the wooden ones, you know, which are beautifully made out of mahogany. There's absolutely no reason, if the material's appropriate to the structure, there's absolutely no reason not to use something, you know, non-traditional. Sure. Yeah. Also, all those uh, old Bakelite cameras are great. And, like, I've got a bunch of Bakelite um, film respoolers for... Mm-hmm. You know, bulk loaders, I guess you call them. Sure. Um, I think those are really tough. I'd love to be able to work in big light <laughs> one day. I don't really know what the industrial process is. So what have you guys been doing lately? What have you what have you been building? What have you been uh, designing? Uh, what's been on your front burners? Oh, um, well, uh, I had it slated to finish my eight by ten this last week, and I just couldn't bring myself to get so involved. I was filling a lot of orders, and so um, I have a couple front burner projects that I banged out in the last three weeks that I put on uh, butter grips or some of them have have been on the butter grip website um, I guess the first one was like um, a little set of film cases for 120 and 35 millimeter in single cases and then double and triple cases which have like a little mount to clip onto like a backpack strap or a camera strap or that sort of thing it was uh Really, you know, sort of simple and, and dumb thing, but people seem, seem to be enjoying them. Um, it was inspired by a guy in my photo class who had this, you know, vintage dual 35 millimeter film can, uh, that clamped mm-hmm. to the strap from maybe the seventies or something. He said he looked all over. He couldn't find them. It took him like a year to get one. And so he said, I think I can make one of those. And so, um, I've found, um, the best sound. I used to think was just circles coming out of the printer, but now I've got this sort of scalloped circle so you can get a grip and turn the <laughs> cap off their screw top like an old film can. And those make really good sounds on the printer. I, I enjoy printing them. Um, so I did that. And then um, I think I mentioned I'm teaching this photo class. Um, it's just like a free four-session class at the makerspace just to get some people uh, more interested in using the darkroom and maybe building cameras and uh, actually i gotta leave here in oh seven or eight hours uh, to make it to uh, photo class on time uh, today hopefully we'll be done um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> um and so I, I've also been using the laser cutter for a lot of things, and I just designed a simple little pinhole camera um, for my students to assemble. And so it's um, a panoramic box pinhole that's made out of laser-cut wood. Um, it's 24 by 56, so you know, kind of a standard almost 1 to 2 yeah. panorama. Um, it's got a 3d printed wine knob, much in the style of the, um, 
frozen photon camera company, 24 yeah. squared. Um, but you know, it's, it's basically meant so that people can assemble it themselves, uh, just sort of to illustrate the concept. I've gotten a, a couple of nice photos out of it and, um, I'm hoping to play with it some more. And mostly I'm really excited to see, you know, what the, what the kids make out of it. Um, because as it is, it's just like a stack of boards and, um, you know, I'll make some instructions on how to glue it together in what order. And, um, you know, it, I think to put it together, you definitely need uh, some wood glue and black paint at the seams. But I, I like to paint a lot of it black to prevent reflections. And then, you know, if you want to go real crazy, you could get a piece of sandpaper. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> a, a pin and some... some uh, yeah, cans to make um, pinhole. Uh, one of the things that I like about that design is is the laser burn on the wood, um, and I kind of want to, uh, you know, I I, I kind of like the idea of leaving that as part of the outside appeal, you know, um, and just painting the inside. But uh, I, it, you know, it's it's the idea of um, you know showing the material. And uh, what it went through um, uh, in order to get to that point. Yeah, so my first, uh, I think I've made three prototypes now. The third I really like. The first one I just covered in black to, uh, you know, uh, cover up all the the holes and the joints and, you know, pinholes and things. And it was pretty darn ugly. I did not do, I just did like a functional black coat. Uh, as quick as possible, so I didn't put on you know layers and sand right. and layers and sand. So it was it looked like a just a blob of black black paint oozing everywhere. So that was not very good. And then um, finally, you know, I I've gotten to the point where I mask the outside when I build them and spray the inside and just sort of sand it down. So I've got that nice sort of uh, laser burnt uh, alternating box joint look at sure. the corners, which I I really like as well. Um, but you know, I'm sure, um, my girlfriend was building one. She's got some gold and teal spray paint set out for it. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the kids make out of it. Um, yeah. And then I guess my latest project is, um, a couple of days ago, a woman, I think her name is Cindy. I think she's sad jeans <laughs> on Instagram, um, <laughs> through my website, um, sent a request form and I get a bunch of request forms. Usually they're for grips for cameras. I don't currently have, and I just put them on a list. Um, and sometimes they're for wacky things that I could never make. And, but this one was a really simple thing. Um, the request was like, uh, you know, those film tab holders they have on the back of a lot of cameras. Can you make one of those I can stick on? And I promptly got back to her. I said, yeah, of of course (laughs) that seems, you know, like a like a few hour project and so yesterday i designed one for 35 and one for 120 and um you know by the end of the day i had them up on the website and i sold like 10 orders of them um so yeah now now i'm in the business of making those little film box tab holders and that's oh and then i got one more project that's not yet camera related but i'm sure will be soon um a bunch of friends and i down at the makerspace have started uh, what we're calling plastics club and we've been building a small hand pump injection molder um we 
have not made any molds yet. That's maybe on tap for Friday, but um, we did get um, the molder. It's, it's basically just, um, it uses the piston from a fire pump or a fire hose testing unit. And uh, we made a barrel on the lathe for it to go in and a couple of band heaters and an Arduino control. And uh, so far we've been able to melt down a whole bunch of plastic and squirt it out through this nozzle. It was up till three in the morning the other day. And so um, I'm hoping to just come up with some plastic trinkets. I made like a bottle opener that you can injection mold pretty easily. Uh, but, you know, once that's working, I I foresee this um, being a really interesting way to make cameras and, and camera parts. I have a question for for you. Uh, what kind of molds do you, do you use, like a metal mold with those? So this is this is actually a really interesting question. I could babble about injection molding for hours, but uh, basically the idea is that um, traditionally the big cost in injection molding. So per piece, it's very very cheap. You can take almost any plastic, you know, melt it in in a piston and squeeze it into a mold, right? But um, and and with an industrial machine, you can make like a part every second or two um, for pennies. But the big cost is the setup cost to make uh, traditionally stainless steel CNC milled or, or by hand milled mold. Um, and that mold could cost between five and $25,000, depending upon how complicated and what the size is. Um, but there has been uh, a little bit of experimentation using resin molds like epoxy cast. Um, and my buddy Josh at the Makerspace uh, recently bought an SLA printer, which does not print the strongest prints, but it prints very fine detail. And it's printing in um, chemically cured epoxy, which means that it can have a very high melting point. So um, either we're going to, well, the whole point of building this small injection molding machine was to test out different mold technology. Um, and so we're going to give it a try printing a direct negative mold with his uh, SLA printer, and we'll give it a try using a bunch of different uh, resin epoxies. One thing I'm pretty interested in is, um, I don't know if you know plumber's epoxy. Sure. It's like a so stick, it's like a and putty. it's got a little bit yeah. of A and B resin. Right. Yeah, exactly, but it's it's mostly you know metal flake in there, mm -hmm. and I think we might try that out. Um uh, so, yeah, so I, and, I was so, going to ask you, um, partly because I have another suggestion for a way to make molds. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I've made dies. If As long as it's a two-part top and bottom die setup, all you need to do is make your original shape out of steel. Take two blocks of steel and join them with a spring. Heat the blocks up till they're very, very hot. Stick your cold steel positive original in between them oh. hit it with a big power hammer and you now almost instantly have top and bottom dies that perfectly copy what the original piece was so anything you can make Interesting. anything you can make by hand out of steel as an original um so for mm -hmm. a lot of simple shapes it's a practical way to make a, a set of dies almost instantly um instead of cutting them out and so I've got a bunch of questions about that. That never occurred to me. Um, you know, we were just going to try and mill, like, I think they call it a, a flask, 
out of aluminum and then put our resin molds in there. But um, what what type of detail can you get with that method of, of heating two pieces of steel and banging them together over a cold piece? Well, you get plenty of detail. It's um, the hot steel is going to conform perfectly to the cold steel. Uh, so it's more. I see. And we're we're talking glowing red hot or almost no red red is too cold. We're talking about near welding heat, so it's a it's a, a almost a white heat. So twenty seven hundred degrees Fahrenheit, something like that, uh, and it cools down you know on the way oh, to wow. the hammer. But the, you want it as hot as you can get it, mm-hmm. and it it will pr- sure. pretty much pick up every little detail and texture. Uh, the the obvious thing is uh, the the cold piece has to be robust enough that it can handle being smashed between two hot pieces of steel. Right. So you can't have like <laughs> right. little dinky weak parts, but for uh, some kind of sturdy form, mm-hmm. it's, it's completely workable. And um, is there a way that you prevent the cold piece from heating up and fusing to the hot pieces? It's unnecessary. Or, uh, it it won't it happen. Not an issue. No, it won't happen because the car- uh, as soon as air hits the, the hot steel, it'll form a thin layer of carbon scale and prevent that from happening. Gotcha. So when you forge gotcha. weld, you have to go to fairly. To the you have to go to great lengths to exclude scale and carbon from the the, the mated surfaces. So yeah, that's what flux. Right. That's what flux is for. Um, right. Yeah. Interesting. I think we will give that a try after our uh, resin test. You know, and I think the the deal with resin uh, resin molds is that you know there's no way you're going to get a million pieces out of the mold. It's going to be closer to maybe a hundred or even ten, maybe two hundred if we're lucky. I, I don't really know. And then, uh, and so I think so. And also, while I'm sorry, while you're uh, thinking about it, casting metal is a, com- a whole other thing where you can get all kinds of detail, and you don't have the issues of heat and force. Mm-hmm. So think about, um, for instance, cast aluminum or cast bronze. You know, if if you don't need right. steel then aluminum would be a fantastic material because it, it's really easy. So to actually, I, yeah, I've got a bunch. Uh, well, well, I've got a friend who is uh, building an aluminum uh, melting machine smelter or whatever you call it uh, for a different project. But, you know, that, that makes a whole lot of sense to maybe use a 3D printed negative from the SLA printer to make a clay positive mm-hmm. to then, you know, Pour, uh, pour aluminum over and make a aluminum cast. That that might be a really nice method to do uh, with the tools we've already got. Yeah, you could make you can huh. melt aluminum at twelve hundred degrees. It doesn't take much energy. That what you need is a furnace, and a furnace that develops twelve hundred degrees is very very simple to build. Um, yeah, my my buddy Jesse's halfway through with one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a. I think that'd be a really interesting approach. Would be a cast mold for your homemade injection i mean i think this is really promising and i it's just reminding me that i've been going through the same mental process with shutters uh we recently heard mm-hmm. a lot of gloomy prognostications about you know the possibility of making n- a new shutter available for people who want to build cameras and i think that the assumption that the shutter needs to be made the way they traditionally were in you know in a factory is wrong and distracting and there's no reason we can't come up with new combinations of of easily available technology to make perfectly functional shutter it just we have to rethink the design is all all right um nick what have you been doing lately 
Uh, so I haven't had a time to build much. Mostly I've been playing with, you know, sort of shooting out film that's clogging up cameras and uh, playing with the, uh, the Cameradactyl OG still, like, just getting used to it. And that sort of led me down this path, and I have a I have a commission I have a camera design I really want to try and commission from you, Ethan, or you should just make this, which <laughs> is basically take the same idea as the OG and make a one that takes a two by three graph lock back, so it's a medium format version, a smaller version, and for me I'm I'm using. Uh, um, Mamiya press lenses because they include a shutter and a helical and everything, and they're in, they all use the same flangeback mm-hmm. distance, so they're interchangeable. So, an OG type camera that takes standard graph lock film backs, and just you can just directly mount a Mamiya press lens to the front of it, then you have a system camera right off the bat. But it's very lightweight viewfinder version instead of the huge, heavy, clunky. Mamiya press body that the cameras are meant to go on. I think that would be great. And one of the reasons it's really appealing to me is that the smaller Mamiya press lenses are really set up very well ergonomically. So they're essentially a large format lens, but the numbers are big and I can read them and the knobs and levers and different uh, controls are set up. So they're very easy to operate with your hand without without having to turn around and walk up to the front of the camera like you usually have to with large format those lenses are generally designed that you have to be looking at the front of your camera to set it. These are set up mm-hmm. so you can be behind the camera because they were designed for a viewfinder and rangefinder style of camera. And so they're much easier to handle. And then, of course, because they're bayonet mount, the interchangeable part is really easy to work with. And they have an included shutter. So there are all these reasons why that just simply making that style of camera to take those lenses would be a, just be a great great camera to use hmm and so this this sounds like um a reasonable challenge to me um the next the next thing i'd like to do with the og after i fill some orders and get a couple things out um make a panoramic back for it is just to make a panoramic version that would do six by twelve um but that's also very very close to what you're talking about uh but maybe um, the the press lenses you're talking about, the mm-hmm. Mini Press ones, they have their own helix. They have their own helical, but it's optional. So if you leave them mounted on the helical that comes with it, then uh, that it's big and heavy. That's the downside. The plus side is that uh-huh. then they're just simple bayonet interchangeable. They all are essentially uh-huh. a large format lens in a large format shutter that's mounted on a helical, just a traditional way with a, with a screwing ring. So you can always remove the lens and shutter, and it becomes a much smaller and lighter uh, uh, setup. And it works gotcha. just as well in every respect, except it now needs a way to be focused. So they, they can be used... Now I, now I got to make the helical. <laughs> right. The, the other thing that I'm thinking about is that um, if I don't make the helical and I use a Mamiya press helical, then I've got to make some sort of breech mount or... Yeah, but they're they're really simple. Mounts. So I have one made of plastic. for mm-hmm. the Mercury created one made of plastic. I see. And yeah, that... that already exists. And I think uh, Dora Goodman's making some version of that as well. It's just a simple plastic... 
it's a whole, you know, it's the simplest type of bayonet you've ever seen. Like, it's very easy to make. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Kiev 60 uses something very similar. My concern is usually not uh, complexity, but uh, size. And a lot of times when things are, you know, meant to mount to metal, they have very thin tolerances where, you know, I can build something out of plastic that's one millimeter thick. It's just not strong enough well i have a i have one i have one made of abs plastic and it is strong enough it and it Uh it would also be very Uh easy to just have this a a sheet of metal cut in the right shape that you would just bolt to the front of your camera i mean that would be super simple okay and and the back of this camera you say graph lock we're talking like a mamiya rb back right so this, the 2x3 Graphlock standard comes from the medium format Graphlex cameras. And so there's all the old Graphlex film holders that fit that. And there are many, many of them out there. They're, they're easy to find. But it does happen to be uh, Mimia, uh, the Mimia RB67 backs fit right on it as well. And they're also very common. Yeah, so, I've got one of those on my desk and, that I use for design reference. So I have uh, every different format pretty much in that uh, 2x3 back. And the nice thing about that is that the whole camera gets quite a bit smaller. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to shoot roll film, there's really no point in using a 4x5 roll film back. It's just big and bulky. So it makes, makes, if you're going to shoot roll film, it's like the roll film version of the OG instead of 4x5. There's no point in using those big bulky uh, four by five roll film backs if you don't need to. Mm-hmm. So the smaller size is a good thing. And you could also, you know, make a, a version that took the Mamiya press film backs if you want those, but they're kind of bulky. Um, yeah. The best one, the best, the very best yeah. ones are actually the old Graflex roll film backs that are for the two, two and a quarter by three and a quarter size that are, um, that have the lever advance. Those are really mm-hmm. well made, and they're sm- quite lightweight. They're much smaller and lighter than the RB67 one. And they make 6x9, 6x7, 6x6, and 6x45. So you can you can have any format you want. Uh, 612 makes the camera wider. There's no reason not to design the body big enough to do that, because that only is going to add a little bit of width. It's not that big a deal. It's just three more centimeters, you know. So I could see doing that um, as long as you can mount the the standard graph lock backs as well. Okay, so I am looking at my calendar right now. Um, would you consider lending me a lens that would arrive on April fifteenth? Sure. Okay. So do, the you, 16th do you need a lens? Do you need a lens, or do you just need the helical? Um. Lens and helical would be preferable, and I think I can okay. um, make a make a prototype of this type of thing. I think a bunch of people might like it. Um, between the 16th so, and the 24th, I have some free time. Okay. In April. <laughs> okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I think the 75 millimeter because it's a bit, it's a little bit bigger, and it's sort of like it's like the average of their lenses. So if you're if you make something that works with that, it'll work with pretty much anything. Um, and here, and here's also, another I question. I don't. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want it. And the other reason is that my very favorite one is the 50 millimeter, which I just wouldn't do without. So, uh-huh. 
Um, here, here's a question. Um, so all of the helixes have the same mount to a camera body. How Correct. about the lenses to the helix? Do they have different um, diameters or, or different? They vary. Or they're, all... they're not all yeah. the same. Um, be, and they're all uniformly much too big and heavy. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a, uh-huh. it's astonishing how much weight there. They're built so that you, you could you really could drive nails with these lenses. Like they're amazingly overbuilt. Uh-huh. Um, but but the, do they uh, all use the same helix, or they all use different? No, helixes? they're all different. Each helical is a I custom-made see. contraption that you know, and it's much like the OG, the lenses, which is a big annoyance in making them. Yeah, well, so the so that's one of the reasons this idea is appealing is that all you do is you've got one camera, but a full set of I don't know eight or nine lenses that would go with it, um, that all include a shutter, and that's the big deal. There aren't very many medium format systems where every single lens has a shutter on it, and that and that's why that's why it would be very practical. They're also inexpensive and nice to work with. Now you could do the same thing uh, for other uh, systems. You could set up a a version for Hasselblad because a lot of those have shutters. Um, yeah, so you know, I I've thought about using Hasselblad lenses or um, oh, Bronica lenses as well. Are really cheap and really nice. The issue with the Hasselblad lenses in particular is that you've got to have a way to cock them. Um, mm-hmm. and you can't cock them from outside the lens, and so right. it has this little small screwdriver thing in the back, which wouldn't be that hard, but it again, would at least need a metal screwdriver tip to mate, if not, you know, a whole metal linkage system. So I didn't, you know, bust right. everything off. There's a lot of torque in a small no. space there. Well, that that's the great advantage. That's the great advantage of the Mamiya Press system is it's, it's, their lenses are standalone and it's a bayonet mount. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's easy, yeah, easy no, to work. Also, with. the cool thing I see is that if people were to bring their own Helix, you know, there's a set flange distance would, would mean I would only have to make one cone instead of making a new cone every time somebody wants to use a uh, exactly. lens that I haven't uh, done yet. Yeah. yeah, it's a really nice system, and the cameras um, are really big and heavy, so it would be an, a, you'd be creating a very different um, mm-hmm. to use cam- camera that took the same lenses. And the other thing is that I just haven't seen any version of this yet that's that's feels really strong and sturdy and comfortable to use um mm-hmm. but your four by five og has all those qualities so i can imagine it would be really really nice so i've been planning to build something like this myself but my frankenstein method of doing it isn't ideal i think that uh the solid i think solid i think your cameras piece, are really nice they're just not repeatable yeah but that's not the only thing it's it's also uh there's practical reasons why a single one-piece body would be really nice for this particular application, um, I think. Yeah, I, I think probably it would wind up... I always try and figure out a way to make a one-piece body, but like the OG, it would probably have to be two or three pieces, just, you know, like that conversation we had about birthing the baby and how, how things oh, sure, have to but, come out. Yeah, but you, the way you're building these things, they're they solid. feel like they're one piece. It's not. Yeah, it's, yeah. It doesn't feel like a bunch of rickety things, kind of, you know, wiggling yeah. around. It's yeah. So, I like that. I like that. I think this would be a really, really high function 
camera. And the other thing about those lenses that appeals to me is that they're fairly modern coated lenses, but they're, they tend to be more antique designs. So you get mm-hmm. some of that nice old-fashioned quality, but they're still very technically capable lenses. So my 50 yeah, millimeter, you know, that's a, that's a Biogon design. And, you know, 50 millimeter Biogon lens for medium format that covers six by nine. That's a kind of unusual yeah. and very cool uh, thing. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite lenses of all time is the uh, 90 millimeter for the Mamiya RB, which I just don't use because the thing is so huge and I rarely shoot anything in a studio. But I love how that thing renders everything. I think it's very beautiful. And the 90s for the Mamiya Press are probably very similar. And they're, they yeah. also are among the more small and lightweight choices. So they're there are some lenses that are kind of oversized, but some of them are fine. The 50 is a really nice oh. size and shape. Um, so it's the 90. Uh, the 100 is, there's a 100 f2.8 that's actually fairly expensive. It's such a good lens. Uh, they're, they're good. Yeah, I see a bunch of one, uh, 100 f3.5s are pretty common. Yeah, that was like kind of the standard that came on a lot of them. And that's a fine lens too. Um, but the 100 2.8 is actually hard to find it, and it's very good, really exceptional. Now you've sent me on another uh, eBay <laughs> eBay search. Yeah, so no, I'll send you a seventy-five if you um, want to mess with it, and and I would say it's worth considering making uh, like a you know just having a, a sheet of metal cut to the bayonet shape, um, you know, by someone with a laser or a water jet machine. So that would be a part you didn't have to make and just bolt it right on the front of your camera. I think it might be worth, this, you know, that might be worth doing. Yeah, it. I'll I'll see what the tolerances of the flange are. If it's like three millimeters or above, I think plastic will be fine. If it's below, then yeah, I think uh, metal or or some right. uh, composite is probably the way. Yeah, and I can send you the plastic. Um, bayonet mount that i do have uh for reference as well and there, that has there is a toggle to to you know lock it in place um and uh-huh. one of the there is there is a feature that's that the one i have depends on us a, a notch which was only present in the older generation mamiya press lenses some of the last series made for the the newest cameras don't have the notch and my but i i handmade a notch in my 75 millimeter so that it works with a more old-fashioned simple bayonet design so okay, when, that's when you send this of. maybe you yeah. can send me some uh photos of the male and female mounts and it's all there on my caliper. Flickr. it's all there on my Flickr site oh, okay if you go, okay yeah, cool go look at it um, all right yeah so this is scheduled for the 16th through the 24th <laughs> of april <laughs> okay you got it Got to do my taxes first. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Okay, so um, what I've been doing lately um, is uh, I I did a couple of things uh, lately. One of one of the things was uh, I went on to Amazon and I typed in micro drills, and there are these little. Um, uh, tiny, tiny little drills, and you can get them in different sizes. I got a set that has, uh, there are 10, 10 drills, two each in the sizes of one tenth millimeter, um, 0.15, 
0.25 and 0.3 millimeters. So those are perfect sizes for making pinholes for pinhole cameras. And yeah, I, I bought the same set. It arrived yeah. yesterday. I've been dying to okay. know how you've had uh, successes. I'm going to try it out. I tonight. tried. <laughs> I tried it out last yesterday, and uh, I did it in you know took an aluminum can, just cut up some pieces for the aluminum can, and um, just very gently drilled a hole. Um, just you know, spinning it and and just pressure from one finger and. And then, uh, you know, pressing down on it and then spinning it with my other hand. And uh, it takes, uh, I don't know, three or four minutes to go through. And I um, scanned the, the, the results last night. Now, um, the idea is you want to scan it at a thousand pixels per centimeter. And so, for instance... Uh, a 3.3 millimeter hole would be 30 pixels across at that. The problem was that my um, Epson software only was pixels per inch. So I had to do some conversion. <laughs> oh, man. And it's, it's 2,540 pixels per inch is the same thing as 1,000 pixels per centimeter. So it took me a while to get that, and I scanned, and I checked last night. This was late last night before I went to bed, and I did some counting, and I got about 32 pixels across in uh, for the 0.3 millimeter um, design. So, you know, you got to scan it, and then you open it in Photoshop, and if you zoom in far enough in Photoshop, you'll get the pixel um, size and you'll actually get a pixel grid that will come up. And I counted across and I got 32 to 34 pixels across. Um, so that sounds to me, uh, to me, uh, that's right on, you know, that's within fudge Mm. distance. Oh, sure. And so, and how circular they were were circular, perfectly circular, uh, or perfect, perfect enough to that, um, that I think that you can get some pretty good images. Now, one of the reasons why I did that is um, even when buying in bulk, my best price on pinholes is about $7 a piece for laser drilled ones. Now, they're laser drilled in a in a very thin material and then mounted. So it's a couple of steps down the road from just drilling a hole in, a, in an aluminum can. And it's thinner material on the laser drilled ones, and I'm sure it's more of a purple perfect hole but you know i can get my per unit cost down to cents as opposed to dollars Mm -hmm. and uh so that was something that i really wanted to try out and and so far my tests have been positive so um you know i'll i'll look at that scan a little bit more closely later today so that was that was uh part of the deal um, I am so what I'm sorry oh. I missed I missed what you used for a drill so what, uh, what these are the micro drills uh, if you go to Amazon and you type in micro drill uh, I got a or you could also look for a PCB drill bit I think a oh. lot of times they're used for drilling through holes and vias on a okay board. 
Okay. Um, and it, so, they weren't so, expensive. So it, they were like, okay, so one end of it, one end of it looks like a tiny little needle. And right. then what is the part that you hold? Does it have like a screwdriver handle on it? Or no, 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 no. It's they're no. they're about an inch and a half long. Um, there's a needle in one end, and then a metal shaft that's probably a couple millimeters across, three, four millimeters across. Um, and um, you just spin that thicker shaft with your with your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine have a bunch of like little plastic donuts, so you can get some torque, you know, between your. Right. Um, your pointer and, finger and your thumb, and they're color coded. Those are color coded for size uh, as well. So um, that's uh, so. I, I I think that this is going to be a, a pretty successful. Um, you know. Yeah, I also think it's going to yeah. be a win. So and yeah, you know, uh, for those pinhole boxes that you're making for the kids, I think that that's the. You know, you can drill up. Yeah. Twenty of those in. 45 minutes and yep. scan them and, and check I'm gonna them. try and do it tonight. Yeah. yeah. And one, one more thing that I thought about is, um, you know, like aluminum foil is probably the right thickness over, uh, right. tin cans, but I'm such a, you know, bumbler. I just put my finger through right. aluminum foil. So one of the things I was thinking about doing is either sanding down a beer can or, you know, once it's flat, or maybe even taking like a sledgehammer and banging it on an anvil until I get that foil um, aluminum yeah. just a little bit thicker. Yeah, yeah you don't actually or, need sorry, you thinner. don't actually need a sledgehammer; just a small ball peen hammer is plenty for aluminum. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, well, one thing that that somebody told me um, it'll change the size of the hole, giant... though. So you have to pound it before yeah. you drill it. Right. 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 So one thing that somebody told me was that they've seen people take a piece of aluminum foil and two like giant, you know, three, four inch diameter ball bearings and just smashing them together really hard. And the point of contact just becomes a really nice pinhole. It seems like kind of a crazy way to do it. But well, that I, actually I, makes sense. I kind of like it that. actually makes sense to me. And if, if you want to make your metal thin locally before drilling... The best thing to do would be to put a ball peen hammer in a really solid vise with the knot with the ball pointing up, and then put your mm-hmm. suspend your metal like balanced on top of it, and then put another ball peen ball so it's ball to ball, and then strike uh-huh. strike the upper one. And so, what you can do oh, then? Oh yeah, so you got three hammers. You can you can get <laughs> uh, you can get it to be thin very locally, and that's good because it make it maintains a stronger overall. Uh, piece of metal so by just making it thin right where the two balls hit each other and then drilling in the center of that dimple um mm-hmm. you can you can get just locally very thin and the and the rest of the metal keeps its strength yeah maybe i'll try that tonight if i can find a second ball peen hammer yeah i was gonna say nick <clears throat> nick you have a hammer everything looks like a piece of foil okay so well so you could use a trailer you could use a trailer hitch for the bottom piece or whatever Uh Uh so the other thing that i've been doing is um so i i I, i'm working on a four by five lumen camera and i'm printing it all um you know out of plastic but uh i have come to the conclusion 
that when I start getting to this four by five size, I there's no reason why I can't use wood for the front to back dimension. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just printing essentially brackets for the wood, you know, um, mm-hmm. you cut a couple of pieces of wood of a certain size and then, um, you know, slip them into slots in a plastic printed, um, uh, frame. And I think that that will certainly increase the speed, reduce the plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, of course I'll have to cut a little bit more, but, um, that's a method of, um, of designing that I think I'm going to hit pretty hard next. So, Hey Graham, can I, can I make a suggestion? Yes, you can. Um, so if you design those pieces of wood to be, uh, 4.9 millimeters in thickness, uh-huh. um, I'm, I might be happy to laser cut a, oh. a bunch of those for you. Oh, well that, um, y- y- 4.9 millimeter. That's, and yeah. why that's is that? Yeah, exactly. That's uh, uh, it's not Luan. It's like one one notch thicker. Oh, okay. I find the Luans like a little um, poor in quality. But I, I've got um, regular ply and then some nice uh, birch, you know, furniture ply uh-huh. that's you know four point eight to four point nine millimeters thick. And I have um, some some cabinet grade that I'm measuring at four point eight four point nine. So I actually yeah. have some some wood that's, you know, it's uh, it's really nice quality uh, on one side. So uh, so yeah, that's what I'm going to be designing for as well. I just just measured it out. Okay, let me throw out one more thing. Yeah. is that the kerf of my laser mm-hmm. is 0.3 millimeters? Right. Um, and so that uh, like on a pinhole, I don't think it might affect too much, but. Um, you know, keep them. So, if you have a square, right? I'm going to remove 0.15 millimeters on each side of the cut from the object. Right. So right. you're, you know, like the that. Let's say, you know, if that piece affects your flange distance, um, you might want to give me an extra 0.3 millimeters um, of piece, assuming that I'm going to, you know, delete 0.15 on either side of that right. flange. But generally. For the things that I've been designing, which is like wood on wood box joints, I find that, you know, 0.3 millimeter gap is like perfect to take some glue and fitting. Um, Cool. But yeah. Cool. All right. So so here's where I jump in and say, why not make an all wooden box with a plastic front and a plastic back or a metal front and a plastic back or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the idea. So I'm the one with the book this time. And I was at, um, my aunt's 80th birthday was this last weekend. So I went to visit her. She lives in Fort Myers and, um, we went to Barnes and Noble and there were two books on the clearance. You know, they've got those bargain books at the front and there were two books that I picked up. One is called Curious Cameras. 183 cool cameras from strange to spectacular and it's by todd gustafson uh and it's from uh george eastman house book and um 
It is... Didn't he do the 500 cameras? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, same author. Yep. Uh, Same same, press and same author. Yeah, exactly. So this is a slightly different book. These are just strange, different ones from that. I'm, you know, it could be that these 500, or, you know, these appear in the 500 book, or 500 cameras book. Um, Although, you know, I'm looking through and I'm not seeing as many of them. I think these are a different set. You know, it's like it's got a World War One gun camera um, from 1915, huh. uh, and it's got an so airplane. It's, it's like camera. an it's like an appendix to the other book. It's adding on some right. more stuff, so it sounds great. Right, and um, you know, and it's got the Instamatic, and it's got the Hasselblad electric camera that went to the moon, apparently, and uh, pocket Instamatic. Yeah, a couple of the, uh, of other things. Um, my other book that I got um, is not about cameras, but it's about photographers. It's called, it's a Tashin book, um, and it's Photographers A to Z. And Hans Michael Ketzel, I'm going to guess, um, Hans, H-A-N-S hyphen Michael. And the last name spelled K-O-E-T-Z-L-E. And oh, I'm pulling this book off my bookshelf right now. Oh, the the, the uh, <laughs> photographers A to Z, yeah, or A to yeah. Z for our English people. You know, like I open up page six twenty three and six twenty five, and every two page spread is a photographer. And um, so, like, I have the Gary Winogrand page, and it's got uh, four pictures that are examples, and it's got a bibliography and shows and uh, and or excuse me a, bi- a short biography and shows and a quote and then the next page is the joel peter witkin um hey he lives in albuquerque is he one of your neighbors does he come down to the maker space oh, maybe <laughs> i gotta look him up yeah joel peter witkin yeah huh? oh he's a his work is a little bit strange um, he did a lot of work with body parts after, after death. Um, and so uh-huh. I just, uh, I, I just found this to be really interesting. And, you know, we talk a lot, you know, uh, I listen to a lot of these podcasts and about photography and there, are, you know, I know quite a few of the photographers, but I don't know them all. And I just wanted to have that as a little bit of a reference. So those are my two books from uh, for this week. No, oh, that sounds good. All right. Yeah, I got to look up uh, Joel Peter Whitkin. He's born in thirty nine. Yeah. So. And uh, so uh, and hey, he was born in Brooklyn. So uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, and he did. I bet we know a bunch of the same. Yeah. Um, so this is. Um, uh, so it's a, it's an interesting book, and you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some politics about who got in and who didn't. Um, yeah, I know this this one, the kiss of a guy's right. head sawed in half, right. is amazing. Yeah. Huh. Um, I bet he lives uh, real close to me. Yeah, he's still alive. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, or at least as of this printing, which was mm-hmm. in. As of Wikipedia, right? Oh, now. as of Wikipedia. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't see a publication date on this. 
don't have a copyright date nor a publication date. That's a little odd. It has a forward and then it goes right in. Maybe it's in the back. So, so anyway, those are my books that I have. Yeah, no publication date on this. That is the oddest thing in the world. Um, so, um, any last... Maybe it's a knockoff. It could be. It could be. Well, I mean, it, it did cost me only $7.95, so... Um, what, uh, any last comments? Anything before we uh, talk about uh, any shout outs? Uh, the only thing that sprung to mind is I just heard a discussion the other day about uh, the WPA photographers, the old, you know, the old oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Depression era. And, and and almost all of them apparently used contacts cameras, except for Dorothea Lang, who refused and only used, uh, I think it was a Roloflex and... She liked a uh, Graflex camera as well because she was one of the kinds of photographers who really th- cared about this, the function of the camera, the ergonomics and how it affected your photography. And um, I guess the context drove some people really nuts. They were the thing to use in, in a certain era, but sure, uh, maybe not this friendly to shoot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, Ethan, do you have any shout outs? Yeah, uh, thanks to at Sad Jeans on Instagram for uh, suggesting this film tab thing, and uh, thanks to Mike Gutterman for testing out the uh, Pentax Six X Seven grip and letting me know it fits on the Six Seven grip. I think um, cool. I've had a bunch more buyers for that thing uh, now that it fits twice as many cameras or so. And uh, on the latest episode, they had a pretty good discussion about the OG, the Cameradactyl OG. While, um, I don't know if you guys have listened to it yet, but uh, Andre falls asleep and snores during this discussion. (laughs) Yeah, I heard that. Uh, That's, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's quality. That's quality podcasting right there. So (laughs) we love you, Andre. Um, So, um, okay. So, uh, Ethan, how can people contact you? Um, I am Ethan at Cameradactyl.com. They can also find me at, uh, Cameradactyl.com. And on Instagram, I'm at Cameradactyl, C-A-M-E-R-A-D-A-C-T-Y-L and at Buttergrip. Okay. And Nick, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, so Instagram is A-V-Y-N-I-C-K, Abby Nick and Nick Lyle on Flickr or Nick Lyle at Homemade Camera Podcast, or is it Nick at Homemade Camera Podcast? Nick at HomemadeCameraPodcast.com. Yeah. Right. And I just wanted to add a shout out too, which is, yeah, uh, on the, there's some new pictures on our, uh, our uh, Flickr group for the Homemade Camera Podcast. There's some cameras, new cameras by Sandeha Lynch and some really cool new stuff from uh, the guy who goes by Dom. Um, on Flickr, and the they're worth looking at. Um, uh, one of the, one thing, um, the last two episodes we've said we're at homemadecamerapodcast.com. That's not where we are. We're at homemadecamera.com. So Nick at homemadecamera.com, oh, okay. and Graham at right. homemadecamera.com, and I made that mistake All last right, time see? too. So, um, so yeah. All right. All right. And, and then while we're 
Well, I'm I'm still not quite done. Um, uh-huh. I also wanted to mention one of the people who follows this podcast has done a really interesting conversion of a Polaroid Color Pack Four into a four by five camera. Uh-huh. Very basic approach. That's Francois Laverdure from uh, Canada, and he he has a really cool home build on there. Uh, again, on our our Flickr. Cool. And then there's Neil Piper's oh, yeah. red glass camera. Um, Neil Piper's red glass camera. So this is a, pa- a camera he's shooting paper negatives in that's made of red glass. I think his wife built it using the techniques that go into stained glass window building. So it's leaded red glass. And that's been functioning. So that's kind of fun. Um, there's a lot of interesting new builds that are that are cropping up and are worth looking at. All right. Um and we want to thank Robbie for uh, composing and letting us use our theme music. 